once again and welcome to Outwith, the podcast that takes you beyond borders and examines the issues beyond the headlines. I'm Hala Mohyadeen and uh, for those who don't know me, I'm a journalist. I'm a Scottish journalist. I have travelled the world and worked all over the world. And uh, this uh, issue we're talking about today comes from uh, an experience uh, three years ago. I'm trying not to frame this in my context because it affects so many more people, but this is one of the most traumatic things I've had to deal with in my uh, uh, journalistic career so far. Three years ago, I was uh, working uh, on a 24-hour rolling news network. I anchored the morning news. And uh, around three years ago, the Greek financial crisis hit. Now, for two hours, I had to, you know, I had to anchor this this news program, and everything was dominated by this uh, this story. It was a monumental event. It was uh, causing ripples throughout Europe. Um, so a very stressful subject. And to make it worse, I had no idea what I was talking about. I was being introduced to concepts like bailouts, bond yields, restrictive cash flows, uh, tranches, debt relief, credit ceilings, all this stuff I was having to power. And I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. And it was a crisis, unfortunately, that just wouldn't go away. So it was, uh, I, I find it quite traumatic. And that's a uh, nothing compared to what the people of Greece have had to go to. I mean, this was a monumental event. I mean, it was a country that was, you know, practically on the brink of collapse, an economic system which was teetering. Remember, we'd already been through the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, this was just a few years down the line, and it just seemed like the next massive impact. So for the people who were in Greece at the time, you saw record unemployment. You saw banks shutting their doors Families had their savings wiped out and the future looked incredibly bleak. In fact, Greece became a byword for, for financial collapse. Now, here we are in 2018 and Greece has, uh, has quietly exited its bailout programme. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because so three years ago, this was such a massive, massive event. And now three years later, this just popped up in one of the papers that I was reading, and it's called Greece, the, the financial bailout programme has ended. Greece has exited its bailout programme, which you would assume is a good thing. It's a very positive thing. And yet it has barely made a ripple in the headlines. So has it been a success? And what does this all mean? Well, to find out, I am joined uh, by Skype from Paris by Stephen Carroll. Stephen's the business editor with France 24. He's also the uh, journalist who held my hand when I was on the brink of collapse, trying to talk about concepts that I had no idea what was happening. Stephen, you'll remember this very well when I came I up to you, white in the face, going, why can't they print more money? And you were very good at trying to talk me through it. Now, I wish I could say um, that it's all sunk in and I'm now a financial guru and I can answer these questions. I can't. That's why I'm coming back to you. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to talk us through this. Um, before we get to the bailout and the recent exit of a bailout, could you just start by sort of explaining exactly what's happened? Like, what was this financial crisis in Greece all about? And why was it such a big deal? Well, essentially, Greece's problems kind of went back a lot further than most people thought. So they had joined the precursor to the euro, which is called the European Monetary Union. And they had joined EMU. Like everyone else, there were conditions they had to meet 
you know, you had to have your budget deficit at a certain level, which meant that you weren't spending too much more than what you were taking in. And Greece signed up and met all the requirements and was admitted to the club and then eventually joined the Eurozone when it came into being and started using the Euro and got rid of the drachma. Now, it emerged at some point in that process that, in fact, the figures they had supplied for their budget deficits were wrong and they essentially were spending a lot more than they had let on. So they sort of gained the system to get in in the first place. But, you know, there was such huge political drive to bring people together with the euro. It was this grand European project. Obviously, there were disagreements about it, major political ones in places like the UK. Other countries joined very willingly, but it was seen as the future of the European Union. Everyone would come together in this great, you know, common currency. It'll be great to be able to go on holidays. You won't have to change your money, all that sort of stuff. So they got on board. They got in. They revealed that they had essentially lied about the deficit to get in, discovered years later. Essentially, at the time, Europe sort of said, well, you know, fine, you're in now, you're obeying the rules, so we'll continue on. And that sort of went on into 2009, as I said, the financial crisis started in 2008. In Europe, it took a little bit longer to hit. It wasn't, you know, we're talking about 10 years of Lehman Brothers at the moment, 10 years since it collapsed. It took a little bit longer to get to Europe. So what happened essentially is that in 2009, Greece came out and said, you know the way we're supposed to keep our budget deficits to 3% of GDP. That's the golden budget rule in Europe. You're supposed to keep it at this level. And they said, well, actually, ours is going to be something more like 9 or maybe 12. <laughs> so, you know, that immediately caused panic because people, these sort of figures that are put out by countries are monitored by investors all over the world. There's these group of ratings agencies who are kind of like the people that give you your credit rating. If you're borrowing money, they say, do I think that you're someone I should lend money to or that I shouldn't lend money to? And they get these series of letter grades. So Greece immediately got downgraded by the ratings agency, which is for many countries, not that big a deal. It it tends to impact how much you're, you pay to borrow money as a country. So again, if you're spending over your means, you have to borrow money to survive, which most governments around the world do constantly. Yeah. But the idea in this situation was is that, well, they're spending too much. The ratings agency said, hold on, you, you're not as good as investment as we thought you were. We're going to downgrade you. Greece's borrowing costs go through the roof and all of a sudden they can't borrow any money on the international market. So it's the equivalent of being told you've reached your overdraft limit and you can't go any further. So then what do you do? Well, then you have to start thinking about alternatives. You know, the the government announced immediately that they would start, you know, cutting spending, trying to get their economy in order to bring down that deficit, to restore confidence, because so much of the financial crisis is about confidence. It's about the people who are out there with the millions and billions to invest, pension funds, that sort of thing, making decisions about where they put money. And it's all based on, they invest on the basis of a return. And if they think you're a safe investment, they want to put their money there. And if they think you're not a safe investment, they don't want to put your money there. So, which is what people are paid for to, to do, to make these sort of decisions. So essentially, Greece found themselves without enough money to pay the bills. So they had to go looking for help. The problem is, is that when you're in the Eurozone, there's one central bank, the European Central Bank, that decides on policy because you're in a shared currency. Under normal circumstances, Greece would have had a lot of different options. If it had its own currency, it would have been able to print more money, for example, something that, you know, would have been an easy solution. Which was my solution, I recall. Devalue the currency, which is what essentially you do when you reprint money, which makes your 
imports more expensive, but your exports cheaper, it can help to drive growth. There's all sorts of, you know, kind of financial instruments you can play with when you're in control of your own currency. When you're not, you can't do that. And you're left without the same range of tools that other countries would have. So as a result, the Greeks ended up without money and had to go looking for essentially kind of it's like going to the bank mom and dad and saying, I need money. You know, I, there's nowhere else I can get money from. And it's the equivalent. What happened was the equivalent of your parents saying, well, that's fine. But we're also getting your boss and your bank involved. And we're all going to decide how much we're going to pay, lend you, how much you need and what you need to do to get this money. And this is where the whole long story of Greek austerity starts. Now I understand. It's only taken me five years. We could have saved so much time. We could have saved so much panic as well, my goodness. Because I owe a good deal of these grey hairs to that particular period in time. No, so I mean, so, so there we are. So, so this is basically down to the fact that um, there was nowhere else to lend money. So Greece had to go to... Had to go to the bank of mum and dad, which is the the the, the eurozone, the, the European EU, Union. The European the, Union. The one that comes up a lot is the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, because they are the world's lender of last resort. Right. So they're the one who's really nobody else in the world you can borrow money from. As a country, you go to the IMF. So I mean, let, let's just go hypothetical here. What? Let's just say the IMF are like, okay, we're you, you really are not a safe bet. We're not lending you any money. Can a country go broke? Yes, but it doesn't. I mean, in theory, yes, but you haven't seen it happen with any major countries. Okay. The the op, the thing is, is, and this is where, again, Greece was left with such a limited range of options because it was part of the eurozone, and because there's so much cross investment across European borders. You know, for example, major European banks had invested money in Greece. If Greece had gone bankrupt and stopped paying all its debts and just said, look, we're not going to do this anymore, something a bit like what Argentina did in 2001, you know, if that had happened, well, then those banks would all have been burned. They would have had huge holes that they would have had to try and fill financially. That could have caused damage all across Europe. Those banks could have stopped lending to, you know, mortgage holders in France or Germany. You know, there, there would have been a knock-on effect across the whole of Europe probably plunging Europe into a recession, which, mm -hmm. you know, worse one that, than what did happen at that <laughs> yeah. period. And, and this is where the whole this whole line came around about no. And, and you know, also there was an element of, of solidarity, or at least that's what European leaders were saying, is that we don't want to let one of ours go under. Right. But then what emerged when they did, so they did the first bailout in 2010. I think Greece originally asked for 45 billion and they ended up getting 110 because Essentially, when they did, again, they went and looked at the maths and said, well, you know, there's no point in lending you 10 euros this week if you're going to need 100 euros by the end of next week. So they, they put together a, a package between the International Monetary Fund, the European Union, the Eurozone, really, and the European Central Bank that, you know, they would come up with a plan and say, we're going to give you this money in exchange. You're going to do the following things. And it's essentially sort out your economy, okay. make it more profitable. And that's, again, what comes into so much of the Greek question is that a lot of the things they were asked to do were, were seemed and were arguably quite cruel. 
Well, let's, let's let's talk about that in more detail then, because this is something which comes up a lot with Greece when you when you when you take a step back and look at it. We'll get to the the end of the bailout in just a second because I still find this bonkers that they've come out of this bailout and there's been no ticker tape parades, there's been no celebrations, and I've not been wheeled out to to anchor the morning news again and been able to say hooray, good news at last. You know, uh, let's talk about that in a second. But what are the things that Greece was asked to do because that it caused a massive amount of of hardship that ordinary people felt. So talk, talk yeah, us through what they were asked to do. And do you think it was it, it was it was too harsh the measures that they were asked to take? Well the the list is very long. I started reading it earlier and I think I got to to austerity program number eleven. Um, when I eventually stopped reading, and that's because you, uh, you know, the, you don't, you don't, they don't say all at once. You need to do these things. They lay them out, and what you do is you get, you know, you do X thing, and you get five billion euros, and then three months later, you do Y list of things, and you get another five billion euros, and that's the way bailouts work. The idea being is we drip feed you the money as you're doing what you're told, which is, okay. you know, some would argue a very sensible way to give people money, but the there were a lot of fundamental problems in the Greek economy to begin with. It was not you know, it was not a good finance in a good financial state. They had a huge public sector. So loads of jobs, not very much efficiency. This is what international organizations have said about Greece's public service, even those not involved in the bailout is that it was hugely inefficient, hugely expensive. Uh, there was very low, uh, very high tax evasions. They had a problem collecting taxes. There were there was a big shadow economy, much bigger than most developed countries. So people, you know, people basically working, getting cash in hand or whatever yeah. for their products and things not going through the books. So there was a, an effort to just say, OK, well, let's get, you know, let's, let's kind of, you know, cut back where we can cut back. And that was cutting back, you know, huge numbers of public sector jobs, selling off some assets they had. There was this whole debate for a long time about selling off the ports because obviously so many islands means a lot of ports, means maritime trade is very important. Greece is a hugely important shipping trade. Yeah. Ports are quite profitable. They were owned by the state. Sell them off, selling off airports in some places as well. You know, selling the family silver is what we talk about often with the IMF because they're, you know, the logic, it's it's the same as, a, you know, if you think about it, if you have to come up with money tomorrow, what do you do? Will you sell the things you own to get it? So that was part of the argument you know, cutting public sector, working on the tax system to fix it, to make sure that people pay taxes, raising taxes in a lot of cases and raising taxes quite significantly. I mean, the VAT on food went up to 23%. Wow. When you think that, you know, in, in a lot of European countries, VAT on food is zero. So, you know, it's a huge it, I, effort to try and get people to pay tax. But that also means that prices go up on everything. Yeah. At the same time, wages were being cut in the public sector and in the private sector because companies, you know, when you start cutting like that as well, people have less money to spend or people are afraid to spend their money. So there's a knock-on effect across the whole economy. People say, well, I'm going to I'm going to keep that extra 100 euros. I'm not going to buy, you know, whatever thing I was going to, you know, I'm not going to buy the new telly. I'll wait a bit longer or, you know, I'm not going to, you know, buy whatever it is I need to buy this month. I'll wait another month to see if I still have a job by next month. And that, you know, that gets into a cycle where, you know, you, it damages the entire economy. The, the one that I think always stands out for me is pensioners. So there's, they made huge cuts to pensions. Now, there were arguably very generous pension schemes that existed in Greece. The vast majority of people didn't have them, but they were there. So they tackled the high-end pensioners first, the ones that were getting the most, and they eventually went down and were rolling it back across every payment category. They, were, they raised the retirement age to 67, you know, and they were looking at trying to get money from every part of the system. And I think the, the pensions one always stuck out with me because, first of all, we saw a lot of protests of pensioners protesting against yeah. obviously their 
their living allowance being cut. But one of the things that I learned through covering this was, you know, the extent to which, you know, Greece, Greek society has a lot of, you know, families living together where you have the grandparents and the parents, and the grandchildren all living under one roof. And when people started losing their jobs, often the only income in the household was the pension. And you had, you know, one grandparent supporting an entire family and then that money gets cut, which means that again, everyone ends up with less money. So, you know, that has its knock on effects as well. Emigration, you know, there, there were stories at one stage of uh, particularly pensioners, you know, there was a huge number of disconnections in the electricity network because people were saying, well, you know, I'm not going to pay for electricity because I can't afford it. So I'm going to just cut myself off from the network, which, which seems mad yeah. in a European country in this day and age that was happening, but that was the reality of, of the effect of those policies. Now, there, there's kind of two sides when it comes to justifying or, or saying, you know, what they needed to do. I mean, the argument that the European Union and the IMF at the time made was, you know, you need to get your house in order. You're, you're living beyond your means. This is how you do it. It's going to be very painful. And realistically, you need the money. So if you're going to stay afloat and not make this much worse, then you need to work with us and, and governments get backed into corners. And that's where the, you know, a lot of the criticism comes of these programs, because there were more of them after Greece, of course, is that, you know, a government only takes this when it is the last resort. If they have any other way of doing it, they will. But then you come under pressure, particularly in the European Union, from other governments that, you know, you might have a government who has banks that are very invested in Greece and they're worried about the impact on them. So they started putting pressure on the prime minister saying you need to take this. Yeah. to take this money because it's going to it's going to be needed um and they, they you know they have both the imf and the eu have said subsequently that they were too hard the imf said they they misjudged the first program and they turned out to be the reasonable ones in this this story yeah. in the end as they were the ones that said we made a mistake we asked them to do too much in the first bailout we didn't calculate the effect it would have on the economy we didn't think it would make things worse and that they, you know they sort of stood up and said mea culpa in you know after the first couple of years and then we had bailout number two and bailout number three and you know just at the very end pierre moscovici who's the economic commissioner for the eu said perhaps we were a bit too tough at times but the eu in general was the one and particularly the european central bank actually were the ones who were the whole way through saying no you need this no, you have to do this. No, there's no other option. We're doing our best. Because there did seem to be at the time almost like a punitive element. And it's Germany that was, there was, there was singled out for that, wasn't it? Because at the time when these, uh, it, it brought down one government, and that's when we saw Alexis Tsipras, the, the, the radical, is it Syriza, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, he was brought in just saying, look, um, we're, this is the bailout condition we're being offered. It's, it will be suicide. Like, we can't take it. We're going to have a, a referendum on whether or not to accept or reject. And a lot of people were saying, well, if this is as terrible as it looks, then then reject it. And um, and then when it, eventually they, they had to come back and accept these conditions, the conditions seemed to become a lot harder. So, I mean, do you think... There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of European power play that was going on with this. And, and certainly the, you know, Germany's big thing through the entire, and this maintained the message the whole way, is that there could be, you know, at the start, everyone had to you know, just, you, ha you have to do this. There's no other option. You live beyond your means. And, the, you know, there was, that was the sort of language that we were getting, particularly from Germany at the start of the bailout. That softened to an extent as time went on, but they remained very steadfast on some issues that could have really helped Greece. And the big one was debt relief. 
the IMF said and identified reasonably early on in perhaps the first maybe two years of the bailout that Greece was going to end up with debts it could never repay. And, you know, if you have to pay a third of your salary in loans every month, that limits how much you're going to be able to succeed and, you know, live well and all the rest of it. And that's the same principle, essentially what happened with Greece is they're making loan repayments that they can't afford to make. Yeah. And the EU and the IMF kept saying, and they eventually actually pulled out of participation of the third bailout and just said that they would provide supervision, but no money because the European Union would not agree to debt relief. And that was coming from Germany. They always said, no, we cannot squander German taxpayers money because Germany is the biggest economy in the EU. So they contributed the most of these bailouts. They said, we cannot squander the money. The money has to be paid back. And the, the final deal that was done on debt relief, which was only you know a couple of months before the bailout ended, was that it would they would be given longer to pay back, so no payments until I think it's 2030, and then you know the interest rate that they would get on that return would be small, and the idea being is that inflation would cancel that out, and you know they'd end up paying back in real terms much less than they borrowed, but it's still one of the most indebted countries in the world. Yeah. As a result of this, because it uh, that's the key point of a bailout is it's a loan. People talk about it, we get this money and we need this money, but you have to pay it back. Yeah. And there's no and, and there's no way around that. And the options, the IMS rule, because the IMF is an international organization, so it has members from all over the world, its rule has always been with every country that it's dealt with, that it you that they would not offer debt relief. You would always have to pay back everything to the IMF. But the IMF had a relatively small part in this bailout. Most of the money came from the European Union and the IMF felt they could have said, give us back some of the money, but not all of it, and they didn't. Whereas the private sector, who were very involved in the first bailout, did agree to take what we call a haircut on debt. So instead of saying, okay, you owe me 20 euro, give me two euro and we'll call it quits. And 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 actually the negotiation that was done with the private sector debt was at the time the biggest debt deal in history. So it was actually a huge achievement that came out of that, those negotiations that Greece had so much of that debt written off. It didn't really help things in the end. No. Um, why was Germany being such a, be, being so harsh? Why was Germany taking such a hard line? Is this was is this to do with the the, the way the trying to get the, the Greeks to accept to the deal, or was it domestic pressure? Or there's there's historical issues at play there as well. I mean, Germany obviously had huge financial problems, um, kind of you know between the wars, etc. So they, you know they there's a historical issues around them not wanting to. I suppose, um, them, them giving up some of the money that they were owed. And, and a lot of it's just responsibility to taxpayers. Like if you had gotten, you know, if you, you were running a country and your citizens had coughed up X number of billions to help out a foreign country, you'd want to get that money back for your own accountability. Um, and, and there's a question of, you know, where that kindness, where you draw the line on that kindness. Um, and, and the German government chose to, to kept, just kept saying, and they always stuck to the same position. That position never changed from the start. So they were consistent all the time. But there were certainly times that the IMF and others said that, that Europe could have done more. Because, of course, if Germany won't allow it, then nobody will. Yes. Because, you know, because they, Germany that, is the most powerful economically powerful member of the the EU, is it not? Yeah, it has the biggest economy and it was the biggest contributor. And I think, you know, France and Italy and and Spain did a lot to try and, you know, because of course Spain and Italy were having their own problems as well. France's economy was never doing as well as Germany's and didn't weather the crisis as well. But they didn't succeed in coming up with any sort of consensus that could have gotten the German government to change their minds. Right. 
the, the, this bailout has now ended. Greece has now exited the bailouts. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean this is over, does it? I mean, Greece is still paying back money. Exactly. Just... They, still, they, they still owe all that money. The economy is in better shape than it was for much of the crisis. But what happened to Greece is one of the worst recessions in history. You know, it was kind of 25 to 30 percent of their economy was just sliced off over that period. The the damage done, emigration being a big one, you have a brain drain of people moving out of the country, investors moving out of the country, the people that could rebuild a domestic economy. You know, you're missing an entire segment of of the of the population that could be productive members of of the country. And that means also when when that, you know, when that age bracket leaves, sort of the let's say people from, you know, 25 to 45 or whatever, when those people leave, you're left with older people who are less productive because they may be productive in economic terms. I mean, you know, they're not because they're drawing a pension, perhaps they've retired. And then you have people who aren't working who are still in school. So you're left with this gap in the middle of your economy of people who should be taxpayers, but also the people who might be creating businesses or, you know, running investment or making lots of money and spending it in the economy and, you know, creating jobs that way. And that kind of can't be undone. There are people that have moved back, but it's not in the same sort of numbers. For example, in Ireland, where you huge emigration during the um, during the crisis there, and there are numbers coming back and are now looking at net inward migration again. Mm-hmm. You know that that hasn't materialised, at least as far as I know, in Greece. And I think the issues that you know the the taxes are still high, and all the stuff that happened, all the cuts that happened, all the taxes that went up, they're all still the same. And no government will really have the leeway to change that for a long time. And, you know, at the same time, the banks, which, you know, the banks, are, it's, it's easy to kind of say, oh, the banks, it's all the banks fault. But the banks are oftentimes the engines of the economy because they're loaning the money to the small business to start. or They're loaning the money to build the new factory that's going to create jobs or whatever, or, you know, fund whatever new tech startup is happening. The, the, if the, the banks have still huge amounts of bad debt because of all the people that couldn't afford to pay their mortgages or pay their loans or whatever. And it's, it's a massive proportion of their balance sheets, which limits their possibility to, to lend. It also means that lending is more expensive. So, you know, you probably will get a better interest rate. You certainly get a better interest rate if you're borrowing money in France compared to borrowing money in Greece. Yeah. So there's all these other knock-on effects. And, and ending the bailout is symbolic, but it doesn't change that much. I mean, the you know, if you, Ireland exited its bailout at the end of 2013, is that right? 2013. And they still, you know, there, there was a good few years afterwards where the budget still had to be very controlled and they still do to an extent. You end up with post bailout supervision, but that's, you know, more just sort of, it's less, there's less demands that the likes of the IMF or the Eurozone bailout fund can make of you at that stage because you're actually out of the programme. Right. And there's still the EU budget rules. So you still can't go over that 3% spending limit. Right. You know, so you're still you're still stuck in a lot of ways. And that's, you know, the the issue towards the end of the bailout has been, did they leave Greece in a good enough state to be able to recover? And there's a lot of the expression that keeps coming up is in the medium term, things look good, but nobody's willing to say about the long term. Right. Well, one of the questions I remember I asked you, Stephen, at the time is um, why doesn't Greece just leave the EU? Because there was always a lot of chat. The EU is putting these pressures on. The EU is being too harsh. And when you say EU, it's code for Germany. You know, they're being too harsh with the, the, with the Greeks in terms of the, the, their ability to shape the economy. Why don't they just leave the EU? Won't that help? Is that, even now, is that an option for Greece to, to, to move forward? 
Uh, I mean, like it is an option in the same way that it was an option for the UK, but whether or not they do it, I think is pretty unlikely because it's it's not the EU, I think, that was the problem so much as the Eurozone. If if Greece had had its own currency during the crisis, they would have been able to cut and recover much faster. Right. But they're still, even if they left, the ties to the rest of Europe are still very strong. I mean, Greece is a huge tourism industry of people coming from the rest of Europe. So they still need to maintain those sorts of ties to be able to sustain their economy. And the, the, the situation could have been, or at least what we were told at the time, is if they had left, it would have been much, much, much worse because then nobody would have wanted to put money in Greece. And then literally they would have had no money. And right. then you can't, you know, you, you, you could potentially end up not being able to buy imports. So no oil. So because so, one of the things that is... I remember just the broader, obviously, as you know, the economics escapes me, but the, the broader themes were that this is the, um, it, it, it turns into more than just, a, you know, a bailout and loans. This, this turned into a more existential question of Europe and the future of Europe and the, the Eurozone. Yes, there's a distinction, Eurozone and Europe. And those questions don't seem to have gone away in the interim. In fact, they seem to be, uh, you know, they're still here. They're still brewing about it. We had Boris Johnson, the foreign secretary, recently um, penning another one of his missives to <clears throat> to cast his, you know, stamp on the Brexit debate. And he was citing Greece as a as an example of why you know the EU the EU and the eurozone is a disaster. And it's uh, uh, you hear Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour left who are very critical of the EU because of the Greek example. Um, and so it, it, I guess my question is, I mean. What what does what does the Greek example say about about Europe on the whole? I mean, is is Europe able to adapt to these challenges, or, or are there too many different speeds, too many different layers of country within Europe um, that, that 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 are hampering the ability to work together? I think I think they learned more, perhaps faster, or in greater kind of with greater drama than everyone would have expected. That how flawed parts of the project were, and particularly parts of the euro. One, did everyone really meet the requirements? Did they all just cook the books to get in? Two, can you actually have a currency area like the eurozone unless you have things like unified tax, a unified budget across the eurozone? And this is a line that you hear a lot from European leaders. You can't have monetary union, a common currency, without fiscal union, a common budget. And that's it's still an ongoing argument. There are still lots of people in the European Union who think that. There are still lots of small countries in the European Union who will never allow that. And there's certainly a bitter taste that came from all of the bailouts and all of the bailed out countries. Even, you know, Ireland is often called the star pupil of the bailed out countries. Like, what a title to have. But the, you know, the it's this feeling that you were pressured into a bailout. And that was what happened with the European countries as they were pressured into taking that money because they were the other European countries were worried about how it might affect them. So there's definitely there was definitely damage to the solidarity of Europe. Now, you know, we at the interviews that were done around the end of the bailout, we're talking about reinforcing that solidarity. And for example, Ireland now feels that because of its strength of position in the Brexit negotiations, that perhaps there's a bit of you know solidarity being shown that was perhaps not shown in the past. So there's it, it certainly raised a lot of fears within. The European Union among European leaders about how people perceive the European Union. I know there's talk as well about next year's European elections, you know, could be a big win for far right parties. There's a, you know, we, we've seen kind of political shifts across Europe. So it, it doesn't leave a very good image of the European Union, but they did stick together for better or for worse. And, you know, I think a lot of people would see it as a, as a lesson learned. There was 
flaws in the system. They've addressed some of them. They have a system now that if this were to happen again, they would be able to handle it much better. But it still, that still doesn't help the Greeks. It really doesn't. Um, Stephen, I'm going to let you go because I know you've been working quite a long day today. Uh, just before we leave you, is there, what, what do you think we should be looking out for next? Because this story is ongoing. It's, it didn't finish when this bailout finished. What should we be looking out for next? And what's the main takeaway that you would, uh, that you would underline for, for people listening to this podcast? Well, I mean, I suppose it's, it's watching to see when the next financial crisis happens. I mean, we're at the we're at the top end, basically, of an economic cycle now. Economies are cyclical, cyclical. So when the next one happens, where are the weak points going to be? We think the banks are safe now. They've, they've done some work to support that. But is there something else that's going to come up? I mean, I don't think most people knew so much about banking systems or bonds or bailouts or anything like that 10 years ago. So in 10 years time, what are we talking about next? And where will the European elections leave the makeup of the European Parliament and Brexit will be a huge impact on that. You know, the, the UK was a very distinctive voice through all of this crisis as someone who was not a member of the Eurozone, but a member of the European Union and wanted to make sure that their interests were heard. And, you know, when you take that voice out of the equation, the makeup of that conversation in Europe will change dramatically. Stephen, thank you so much. Lots to keep an eye on, lots to keep us busy, certainly. Stephen, that's been amazing. I understand it an awful lot better now. I will still keep coming to you for all, Good. <laughs> for all these like, help, help, I don't understand this. Um, if you um, love listening to Stephen and you want to hear more from him, Stephen is, of course, a, he's the business editor at France 24, uh, runs an amazing series called People and Profit. And of course, keep following Stephen on Twitter at new Stephen PH, uh, Stephen with a PH. Uh, we'll put that in the, the podcast notes and um, keep following Stephen for all explainers, all interesting things on Europe, on finance and the economy. Stephen, you've been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. And we will see you again next week for some more Outwith. Bye for now.